Good morning again, Hill family. How are we doing this morning? If you have a Bible, please open it to Joel chapter 2 this morning. Joel chapter 2, three-fourths of your way through the Bible, the second of the minor prophets. If you're having trouble finding it, don't be ashamed. Use the table of contents. That's what it's there for. All right. Joel chapter 2 this morning. When the tide turns, as the phrase goes, it's always obvious. Um, Fellas, I don't have much for you today on Father's Day, but I will try to give you a basketball illustration to connect with you at least, all right? That's my love for you today. Game four of the NBA Finals, the Warriors were down uh, by four points with only four minutes left in the game. A loss would have would have uh, put Boston up 3-1 uh, with game five going to be played on their home court. Something happened, though. Steph Curry went for 43 points to tie the series at 2-2. And from that point forward, it was obvious to Warriors fans and a few Boston fans we have in the room that the tide had turned, that the Warriors were destined to win their fourth title after that moment. In an even more real sense, a few days ago at Huntington Beach, at the pier there, I was with my family. I literally watched the tide turn. Um, Though I didn't get into the water, I had always wanted to uh, observe what they call called the Mecca of California surfing there at the pier. I wanted to observe it, and I was able to. And it was pretty impressive. Um, And I learned a lot. I learned there's a difference between the the, the break on the north side and the south side of the pier. You can see it. Um, I learned that certain times of the year, surfers actually surf underneath the pier, right in between the huge wood beams there. I also observed that uh, and learned that there is a, uh, an obvious turning of the tide when, like clockwork, all the young, talented, aggressive surfers begin to exit the water and the old guys with their long boards into the water. I learned what time if I'm going to surf, I need to show up. It's obvious, it was obvious though, that the tide had turned. If you're here and you don't care anything about basketball or surfing, that's good because I'm not here to talk about either this morning. Uh, we're, we find ourselves, as our sister read, in the middle of our series through the book of Joel, right smack in the middle of the halfway point of chapter 2, when a definite transition takes place in the book. The tide literally turns this morning. And it's obvious. Uh, The locust, as we've been discussing the past couple weeks, becomes a thing of the past. And the prophet's focus now becomes fixed upon the future going forward. The phrase, as you're going to see as we finish out our series this morning and next week, the phrase, I will and you shall, will now frame the rest of the prophet's message. Now, if you haven't been here, or if you've forgotten Joel writes in a very difficult moment in the history of Israel. A plague or a a massive swarm of locusts has really devoured the land. Uh, Great and extreme, great need and really extreme difficulty has come. And it's a place from which God has brought it, he said. It's a place from which he intends to instruct his people from. The, The prophet's call last week has been for, the last couple weeks has been for them to wake up. To the great day of the Lord that is approaching when God's coming judgment for sin is approaching. And their only hope, 
So we saw last week was to, that the people would cast themselves upon the mercy of God through honest, broken repentance. And this morning, the, the Lord responds accordingly. We are provided, maybe we might say, the answer to the prophet's rhetorical question in verse 14 from last week. If you remember, the prophet asked rhetorically, who knows? Who knows whether uh, he will, the, the Lord will, will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? And we know this morning he will. The tide has turned and the Lord does respond this morning. And here's what we learn from his response. We learn that through repentance and faith in Christ, God restores us and God empowers us by His Spirit to live as His people. Through repentance and faith in Christ, God restores us and God empowers us by His Spirit to live as His people. After our sister already read our text this morning I'll be preaching from, I'm going to pray before we transition into unpacking the text. Father, we've been making our way through Joe and we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's been a difficult, hard word up until this point. A word we need to hear. A word that exposes our heart. Showing us the danger of our sin, the seriousness of our state before you in our sin. And the reality, the promise that it covers all through the Bible that there is a day coming where you, the just judge, will reckon sin. You will come and you will deal with sin. And Father, this morning, as we saw last week, we see a response to what you called us to, to repent. To lay ourselves honestly and brokenly before you and plead upon the mercy of God. And we see that when we take that posture, a door opens for us. The steadfast love of the Lord is made available to us. And the steadfast love of the Lord promises your, your restoration in our lives. So God, I pray as we spend the next 30, 40 minutes in this text, you will help us to see the grace and the mercy of Christ. But you will help us see the beauty and significance of what it means to be the people of God. There may be no more important text in our Bibles than this one to teach us from the Old Testament what it means to be the people of God. Show us and instruct us. For any here who do not know you, help them to see their sin, Lord. Not just a simple glance at it, but a real reality of the seriousness of their sin. But help them to see Christ, the riches of what he offers. For all of us, shape us, mold us into the image of your Son by your word, through your Spirit, this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything, everything before us this morning, hinges on the people's corporate response last week, where the prophet called a solemn assembly, he gathered them together in a covenant posture. He gathered them together and called them to repent. And while we're not going to find any specific reference in the text saying or stating that they actually did that, the change of mind and the change of circumstances before us make it absolutely clear that they must have. And in response to their honest, heartfelt repentance, verse 18 says, Then the Lord became jealous for His land, and He had pity on His people. The Lord had bound Himself to a particular covenant relationship to his people Israel and according to his grace he he called Israel to himself he would be their God and they would be his people he said and at the heart of this relationship was the requirement of the people's obedience 
That they must live in covenant faithfulness to their God as a demonstration of who He was. And if not, the Lord promised His disciplining hand would follow. And we've seen that evidence through this plague of locusts in the text. But the Lord also promised to bless His people. If they returned to Him with their whole hearts, with their repentant hearts. And this blessing of covenant restoration is where we begin this morning. And this restoration begins with the threefold description we noted back in chapter 1 of grain, wine, and oil. We talked about it depicting God's provision for His people. It says, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. What we find here in the text of Joel this morning is a a reversal of sorts is underway. What was stripped away is now going to be demonstrated to be restored, a promise to be restored. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil, verse 24 says. Verse 26 goes on, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. The text is clear. When God restores, no one is neglected. When God restores, no one is deprived. God's restoration begins with His abundant provision for His people. Grain, wine, and oil will overflow in the land, the text says. He will ensure there is plenty. More than enough to provide every need and more. God's promise to restore His his provision here. He also promises to restore his protection. Verse 20. I will remove the northerner from you and drive him, drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the east sea and his rear guard into the west, western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Now this phrase northerner again brings us to our somewhat interpretive dilemma we've been wrestling with through the, the book of Joel. Is this a neighboring nation like Assyria and Babylon, which we know is coming in the near future to bring about exile for the people? As it's mentioned in other prophetic books, Isaiah speaks of this, Jeremiah speaks of of Babylon in particular as, as as a northerner. Or is this a reference to the locusts? And there's probably a bit of truth to both here. But in the, immediate, in the immediate context, especially what I see in verses 21 to 25, the, the locust seems to be the focus. And he's going to say in a minute, the locust, my army, too. So I think there's both going on here, but I think he's focusing specifically on the locust here for, at this point. He says, for every, we're going to see that everything the locust destroyed in chapter 1 is said to be restored here in, in 21 through 25 in really celebratory fashion. It's very intentional, his language. We see beast of the fields mentioned. You remember those in verse one, in chapter 1. Green pastures are mentioned again. You remember those in chapter 1. Fig trees and vineyards. All of those are shown to be restored. That which the locusts destroyed are said to be restored. In the end of verse 20 reads, The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Now again, this could be description of the carnage of war. But a plague of locusts is known to leave an appalling odor as the locusts die off, oftentimes left in huge Piles stacked up along the sea. And the Lord's restoration, the Lord's restoration includes His promise of protection. That's what He's saying here. And notice He promises to do this not in some secondary fashion. Look at the language. The Lord says what? I will remove the northerner. 
I will drive him into a parched and desolate land. We need to pay attention here, brothers and sisters, because it's intentional in the text that the same Lord who commanded the army of locusts, remember what it says in chapter 2, that the, the Lord was the one thundering at the charge of this army. That the same Lord who commanded this army of locusts to bring destruction into the land is now the same Lord who says to bring about its destruction and its demise. The prophet is not confused, and neither should we be. How God is the one at work in every single detail of this letter, executing His providential purposes over His, over his people. And that very truth is meant to lead the people to rejoice, to praise. Verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. Notice how the Lord speaks of the locusts or this army of northerners, what? Having done great things at the end of verse 20. You see that? But this should not cause the people any fear, right? But verse 21 says, For those great things have been swallowed up by the greater things of the Lord. 21 says, The Lord has done great things. The, the sovereign purposes of God should never should never seem like a, a club to the people of God. Instead, they should be a, a comfort and a means of rejoicing for us. As great as our enemies may be, as difficult as our pain may feel, as dark as our situations may become, we must rest and rejoice in the fact that our God reigns. And He is committed to executing His purposes for His people according to His plans. That's the message of Joel. He has and He will do great things, the prophet says. He is committed to the protection of His people. Now verse 25 is, if you don't know anything about Joel, you've, you probably know verse 25, right? It's probably one of the most well-known verses of this book. It says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army, he calls them, which I sent among you. Now this word can be translated repay. If you're looking at a CSV, you see that. Um, depending on other translations, you might see that as well. It could be repay or restore. But it's a word carrying a, a legal connotation in terms of compensation. God is here acknowledging all the damage He has caused His people. And He's saying His... He, that He will make it up to them. That He is going to compensate them. This is His promise to His people. No loss, no pain, no difficulty is meaningless to the people of God. God will restore. He will compensate. He will repay in a sense. The Bible is a story of restoration. The God of the Bible is a God of restoration. And this is, in fact, the story... And the promise of the, the gospel message that God will in fact restore what has been lost due to our sin. But God's restoration comes not as a result of God owing us anything. 
Though this word restore or repay carries legal connotations, it would be a great mistake to understand God's relationship to His people in any sort of legalistic terms. In other words, God does not pay us according to our deeds. He does not give us what we deserve. If that was the case, there would be no hope of restoration at all. What you and I deserve is God's just, just, just judgment and eternal wrath for our sin. We deserve the day of the Lord overcoming us. No, God's promise of restoration comes in accordance to His grace, to His mercy, to His steadfast love, to His compassion to His people, which the prophet pointed them to in Exodus 34 last week. And the result is clear. It says here, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Now at first glance, if you've been going along this journey through the book of Joel with us. You may tend to see, or it may seem like, this restoration is somewhat arbitrary. As if God caused this locust to strip the land of His grain and His wine and His oil, now to simply just restore it all again. What's the point of that? Is that what God has done here? God stripped the people that they might come to truly know what it means to be His people. Notice the repeated phrase back in verse 19 and verse 26. And you will be satisfied. The abundance of God's generosity, which is put on display here, is meant to instruct God's people That obedience to God's word provides access to God's heart. And access to God's heart leads to true satisfaction as the people of God. God's generosity is never intended for our luxury. For our prosperity. For making much of our stuff and our things. His Generosity is meant to teach us the sustaining and satisfying nature of God Himself. It's meant to help us taste and see that the Lord is good. This was the lesson of the locust. Remember how it exposed the people's hearts, we said. In chapter 1, the prophet made clear that when the grain of the fields and the vines of the trees and the, the vines of the trees became dry and they dried up, what happened? It said, so did the people's hearts dry up. So did their gladness dry up. They were seeking to find their security, their their, their satisfaction in the provision of God rather than in the provider Himself. So God stripped them. God pulled it all away from them. And He exposed their hearts. And now having their hearts exposed and broken before the Lord, God's generous restoration allows them to understand where true true satisfaction is found. And all of this is to be done to uphold the name of the Lord 
among the nations, as verse 19 says. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. And then again in verse 26, we, we read, And my people shall never again be put to shame. Israel was God's people. Israel was God's heritage, His possession. They were His special and distinct people. But this was due not to anything in themselves. But in the God who made them distinct. Yahweh, the source and substance of their true satisfaction was to be their message to the nations around them. And it wasn't. So God stripped them and broke them so that they might truly come to know what will really satisfy them. True satisfaction is found in God and God alone, brothers and sisters. When we, when you partake in the fullness of the plenty of the things of this life, what happens? We're left unsatisfied. That might be different for each one of you. What you see as the fullness of the plenty of the things of this life, when we partake of them in their fullness, we're left wanting something else. We're left gluttonous, but not satisfied. But when we partake in the Lord, we find true satisfaction. And we, like the people of the prophet's day, tend to miss the true satisfaction of God by allowing our hearts to be deceived by the things of this world, believing they will truly satisfy us. And God in His grace often strips us that He might truly satisfy us in Himself. Some of you feel stripped this morning. And some of you may tend to think God doesn't love you. And that God doesn't care for you. That that's what the stripping must mean. But beloved, have you considered that the stripping itself might just be an expression of God's love and care for you? He desires for you to find true satisfaction in Him. He wants you to know that He is your God and there is none else, He says. The book of Joel, the whole process of stripping and restoring, teaches us that from the bottom of ourselves is where the grace of God's restoration is to be found. King David learned this. Psalm 51, he cried out, what? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. But his cry for God's restoration came from a place of extreme stripping due to his sin. It came from out of a place of honest, broken confession before the Lord. Everything was taken from him. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Excuse me, David. Who have you not sinned against? That you would say, uh, before you and you only is my sin? David committing adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed the commander of the Lord's army God had sinned against Bathsheba. 
God had sinned against the nation. I mean, um, David had sinned against Bathsheba, against the nation, against the whole army. Who had David not sinned against? And yet he says, against you. And you only have I sinned, O Lord. David understood the reality of his sin. He says, have mercy on me. David calls for God to purge him. He calls for God to cleanse him. He calls for God to create a clean heart in them. And then in verse 12 he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. God's heart for His people is restoration. I want you to hear that this morning if you're not a Christian. And if you are a Christian, God's heart for His people is restoration. But His restoration demands our stripping. It demands our repentance. It demands our honest, broken hearts before the Lord. This is the pathway in the Bible of restoration. In everything we read in the book of Joel, in the Old Testament, serves as a stepping stone to the new. So we turn now from the paying back to what we now see as the pouring out, the spiritual pouring out. Verses 18 to 27 spoke of God restoring or paying back His people. In verses 28 to 32, they point us to the future when God will do an even greater work of pouring out, the text says. And similarly to the, to the vision received by Joel concerning the, the day of the Lord out of this midst of the locust. It seems like in the midst of this locust and the destruction of the land that Joel received this greater vision of a, of a coming day of the Lord that was much worse. It seems in the same way. Out of the midst of this restoration, out of the midst of the, the rain pouring in the in the early seasons, in the latter season, in the, in the land being drunk with the rain that was pouring upon it, that Joel received a, another vision, an even greater pouring out of an age when God would pour out His Spirit upon His people in the future. Brothers and sisters, I can't say it any other way, but tucked into this little obscure verse in, in our Bibles is contained maybe four of the most important verses in the Old Testament testifying to the saving and empowering work of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speaking of this section, one author says, quote, it arguably had more impact on the writers of the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. If, he says, continuing, if Isaiah 53 is the key scripture for understanding and experiencing the cross of Christ, then Joel 2 is essential for our understanding, teaching, and experience of the coming and the empowering of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people. Let me read it again for you, beginning here in verse 28. And it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now the introductory phrase there, and it shall come to pass afterwards, points us beyond the days of the destruction and restoration in the days of Joel to a time when God will manifest His saving power through the pouring out of His Spirit upon His people. And though the ministry of the Spirit obviously is much more developed in the New Testament, we would not serve ourselves well if we didn't think for a moment about how it was definitely not absent in the Old Testament. Most of the ministry of the Spirit was tied to empowering certain individuals, mostly leaders, 
at specific times to speak forth the word of God in specific ways. Numbers 11 and 12 is a very important passage as we think about this verse in Job. Numbers 11 and 12, Moses was struggling to lead the people of God. They were grumbling and he was having a hard time leading the people. And God instructed him to gather 70 elders at the tent of meeting. The Lord promised that he would take some of the spirit that was on Moses and distribute it to the elders to help him lead. And it happened. Chapter 11, verse 25 of Numbers explains how the Lord took some of the spirit that was on him. He put it on the 70 elders. And it says, as soon as the spirit rested on them, the text says they they prophesied. They began speaking the word of God to the people of God. But two of the elders received the spirit without coming to the tent. And they were even found prophesying outside the tent. It says in the camp amongst the people, which led to an argument to break out. Causing, saying, no, Moses, take your spirit off these people. They, th- this can't be happening. And Moses responded, quote, are you jealous for my sake? He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit on them all. So when experiencing God putting his spirit on 70 men, Moses longed for a day when all God's people would experience this. The, the, most of the major prophets speak to the Spirit of God, to a, a new age coming. Ezekiel speaks of a day when the Spirit of God will take out the heart of, the heart of stone from God's people and put in a heart of flesh that we might truly be able to obey the Lord. Jeremiah speaks in this same way of a new covenant, of a day when God will, by His Spirit, forge in us a new heart. Isaiah speaks of a day that when the Spirit of God comes, that He will mark out a new people, a new community, that will be marked by the Spirit of God. Beloved, we must not forget that while God, that while people knew God in the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic economy, there were many aspects which were very secondhand to them. The prophet Amos said, for the Lord, in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secrets to His servants and prophets. Under the Old Covenant, to know the Lord and to, to know the secret things of the Lord required the ministry of a prophet. And these secrets often came by way of dreams and visions as we see in the Old Testament. These intimate, direct revelation given to the prophets to speak to the people. So this language here in Joel of pouring out is intentional on his part. And it reflects God's abundant reign for his people that he's just been talking about. As one author says, what's being described here is not a drizzle. It's a downpour of God's spirit. And this outpouring of God's Spirit is said to fall on all flesh. Not a select group of leaders. Notice what it says in this new era. All social distinctions, gender, age, social status, as criteria for receiving this Holy Spirit, will be erased. Young and old, male, female, slave and free, will receive the outpouring of the Spirit and be able to prophesy. Joel looks forward to a new day when all God's people will share in the ministry 
of the Spirit. The ministry of the Word. When everyone by the ministry of the Spirit will share in the secret things of the Lord. But notice, again, this, all this comes about in the context of the great and awful, awesome day of the Lord. Verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So on the other side of this great pouring out of, the, of God's Spirit, the great day of judgment, the day of the Lord will come. Blood, fire, smoke. Language we've seen all throughout Joel, hearkening back again to the Exodus story. Point, but, but here, pointing forward to the terrifying reality of the Almighty executing His final judgment for sin. But leading up to that time, Joel says God is going to do, a, do something new. He's going to do something special. He's going to do something supernatural amongst His people by the pouring out of His Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we're not left wondering when this time will take place. From the day of Pentecost, following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as the 120 disciples are gathered in the upper room, Acts chapter 2 records these words. It says, The Spirit came upon them. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, it says they began to prophesy. They began to speak the secret things of Christ in languages not their own. And when questioned as if these actions meant that they were drunk, the Apostle Peter says what's taking place is not happy hour. It's the Lord's hour, as prophesied by Joel. He says, quote, men of Judah... And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. Since it is on the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes verbatim Joel's prophecy. This pouring out of God's spirit at Pentecost is proof that the final chapter of God's redemptive purposes have begun. With the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Peter states plainly in verse 33 of chapter 2 in Acts. Speaking of Jesus, he speaks of him as being exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured this which you see here. Now. Same language of Job. But the focus of Peter's sermon reflects the heart of Joel's message. As we've said over and over, the heart of Joel's message has been the coming day of the Lord. And he says, quoting Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the, the great day of the Lord. Saved from the just judgment of God poured out for sin. In this name we are Called to, we are to call upon to be saved, Peter says, is Jesus of Nazareth. The one whom was delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He said, the one you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, but God raised him up. 
loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And how is this pouring out of the Spirit to be applied on God's people? How is this new restoration of God's people to come about? Just like in Joel's day. Through repentance. But now repentance and belief in the person and work of Jesus. Very interesting here. It says that when Peter preaches this message, what is the response of the people? It says that they're, they were cut to the heart. The language should take us back to Joel, right? What did the prophet say? Rend your hearts, O Israel. And here that language is being directly carried out. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive this gift of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now, we went to a couple places here. Joel, Peter. I want to leave us with at least three applications. What does this teach us? I want to give us three things that this great passage in Joel teaches us teaches us first that sin is serious. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've talked about the seriousness of sin and the great day of reckoning which the prophet warned the people about. He spoke of, of a day of coming judgment as being great and very awesome. And he says, a day of which who can endure, he says. And Peter in no way minimizes or downplays this day at all. He sets it forth with just as much force and urgency for people to believe, to repent, and trust Jesus. Our sin is a serious thing because God is a holy God. What we ought to do, we don't do. And what we ought not to do, we do. And while that causes some issues maybe some hurt feelings amongst ourselves. If we think that that's only as deep as our sin goes, we miss the whole point of the Bible. The real issue of our sin is our sin before a holy God who's created us. Our sin is an affront to His holy and just person. And He must respond if He is God. To not respond would be to compromise the perfection of His justice and His righteousness. The Bible is clear. There is a day coming when God will pour out His wrath and justice on sinners. And it will be a great and awful day. And who can endure it? No one. But neither do we have to. Because God has sent His Son to endure it for us. Upon the cross... Jesus took the wrath of God due our sin upon Himself. And three days later, that's Peter's message, He rose, demonstrating He has the power over sin and death. And Peter says to escape the day of the Lord, we must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. This is the way of escape. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And repentance has been our message through Joel. Joel's helped us so much there. There's an urgency to repentance, we saw. Even now, turn, he says. Repentance is not a playing with our sin. Repentance is not a coddling our sin. Repentance is not looking at our sin, seeing the reality of what God says in the Bible and saying, well, you know, 
I'm still enjoying my sin, so I'll get to that later. No, that's not repentance. That's a dangerous thing to play with. There's an urgency of repentance, but repentance is a matter of the heart. Joel said we must come broken and wholeheartedly before the Lord. We lay ourselves honestly before the Lord. And repentance rests in the grace and mercy of God. His steadfast love towards His people that we know in Christ. Repentance is a turning away from the seriousness and the the really damning realities of our sin and turning to the steadfast love of the Lord offered to us in Jesus. That He bore our sin on the cross. And He offers us forgiveness and eternal life in Him. There is a way of escape. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So sin is serious, but I also want to see that salvation is supernatural. Our text reminds us of the supernatural reality of our salvation. Look, becoming a Christian is not just you making a commitment to follow Jesus. Though it does require that. Becoming a Christian is not just making changes in your life. Though change is necessary. Becoming a Christian is you partaking in the supernatural reality of God, pouring out His Spirit upon you and giving you new life in Him. It's taking part in what the prophets long to see. When God would by His Spirit remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh that are truly able to obey the Lord. Salvation in Christ means God coming to abide in you and dwell in you by the Holy Spirit. It is you having access to the secret things of God. The mysteries of Christ now made plain. And it is you being empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak forth these secret things. These mysteries made known to the world around us. Our text this morning, I do feel, needs to probably correct us and convict us as it relates to our understanding of salvation. It needs to correct us regarding the way we tend to think and speak about salvation as if it's a decision that we make. Or if it's a, just merely an experience that we had in the past. No, salvation is a supernatural reality when God, by His grace, snatches us from the destruction of our sin. In the coming day of His destruction, by birthing us by His Holy Spirit. Christian, what a gift. What a treasure we have in Jesus. What a reality it is to walk in the Spirit. And this should convict us. Christian, stop trying to find significance in the things of this world. That's for me if it's not for you. Christian, you are significant because your life is supernatural. You have God's very Spirit indwelling in you. You are alive in Christ. You're born of the Spirit of God by which you share in the inheritance of heaven as a son and daughter of Him. I'm not saying we don't struggle. We do. I do. I know you do. But we struggle not alone. For God Himself by His Spirit resides in us. And He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Salvation is supernatural. 
But lastly, and we could spend weeks here, the church is significant. I said earlier, Peter included this prophecy of Joel verbatim in his sermon. Well, he actually didn't do that. He actually made a few edits. Where Joel begins his prophecy with the words, Afterwards it shall come to pass. Peter introduces it with different words. In the last days, which are here. Because the church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we live in the last days. And of all the moments of redemptive history you could have been born, you live now. In the age in which Joel spoke of, we live post-Pentecost. We live beyond this moment of the great pouring out of God's Spirit. And we live just prior to the coming day of the Lord. The next event that's promised to happen in redemptive history. God birthed His people, the church, to live within this most important age. And he has empowered not just specific leaders, but all of the body of Christ to live within this age. We have all been given access to the mysteries of Christ. We have all been empowered to speak the truth of who he is in this world. And God continues today, through Jesus, at work in his church, to pour out his spirit upon all flesh through the preaching of the gospel, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But Peter made another edit. Or might we call it an omission? He omitted the final section of Joel's prophecy where he speaks of, For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. Now he kind of deals with that because he speaks of all you in Judah and Israel today. But he left that point out. And instead, Peter inserts this promise of escape to those who are near and those who are far off, he says. Peter is making clear the door of this promise of escape, of receiving of the Holy Spirit, swings wide open far beyond just Israel. And what we know from Peter in his life, he didn't know exactly how far that door swung open. It took some time in the book of Acts for him to figure that out. But Paul also picks up in Romans 10, quoting Joel in verse 12 of Romans 10, stating, For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then he says, he quotes Joel, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You remember God's desire in Joel for his name to be honored among the nations. Here it is. As God's new covenant people, we live for the glory and honor of God by living as his new people, birthed by his spirit and empowered to proclaim his message of salvation to all nations. That from seashore to seashore, the name of Christ would be named among the nations and his saving power of the gospel would bear fruit for all to see. Hill Church. Our little church here takes part in this reality. Joel could literally say, from his prophecy, you want to see it played out? 
7405 Orion Avenue this morning. There it is. Our little church, with all of our problems, with all of our difficulties, you want to see the age when the Spirit of God is poured out upon the people of God and all are empowered to prophesy and to speak the Word of the Lord, when all will know the secret things of Christ. We're one expression of it. There's no more significant thing that you can be a part of than the local church, than the church of Jesus Christ. This is our calling. This is our purpose as a local church here in La Mesa. Do you see the significance of who we are? And what we're called to be as God's people together. But it says the tide has turned. As Joel said, there is a restoration that God applied in the old covenant to his people. But it was merely a stepping stone to the restoration that's offered us in the new. But in Christ, we know what it's like to be truly restored, to be reconciled to God by His Spirit. We know what it's like to know the secret things of the Lord, to be birthed of the Spirit, to not have to run to a prophet and say, help me understand the things of the Lord. We have the Word of God by the Spirit of God. We can know and we can proclaim the truth of who Christ is to the world around us. But that reality that we're walking in today sits with a dire warning just on the other side of it. There is a great and awful day coming. God will judge the world through a man, the Lord Jesus, for sin. And what we do with Him will determine whether we escape or brought condemnation because of it. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you know Christ this morning? Have you trusted Him this morning? And church, if you have, do you see the significance of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of the local church? Let's embrace and love our calling together. Amen? Father, another text, another week, another drop in the bucket of the mysteries of what you've done in your people. And God, I pray for us as a church that we would see the great privilege, the great responsibility that we have of living in these times, at this moment. And that we would be faithful to proclaim the message of Christ. All who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. That all can experience and know the Lord Jesus as we do. That all can walk in this newness of restoration. Yes, there's more restoration to come, of course. But we can truly know that now and walk in it. And God, as we sing in just a moment, we're going to sing for the cause of Christ. I pray we would take that in in light of what we heard today in Joel, in light of what we heard today from our brother Peter, that we would live for the cause of Christ together. And God, if anyone here doesn't know you, wrestling with the truth, I pray they would ask their neighbor, come find me after service. So what does it mean to know the Lord? What does it mean to experience the supernatural salvation that you spoke of 
Lord, might we open the scriptures and show them that they too might be able to call upon the name of the Lord. All of us now, we do that. We call upon Christ as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.